Living Stones is our discipleship pathway we use to bring people to faith, to grow people in the faith and their life, and how we raise up new leaders. 1 Peter 2.5 You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're exploring the first zone of discipleship, the camp, where a person learns to live reconciled with other people. There are five steps in this area, and we're on the final step. So this is a good time to recap the camp. Faith, joining God's community. Evangelism, inviting others into God's community. Accountability, success by building trust with God and others. Responsibility, maturity to face life's challenges. And fifth is justice, where I partner with God to restore the world. Justice is illustrated by the tribe of Dan. Dan's blessing is in Genesis 49:16-18. Dan will judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan will be a snake by the road, a viper beside the path, that bites the horse's heels so that its rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, Lord. Dan will be a judge. A judge brings about justice. But an Israelite judge is not limited in scope as judges are today. In the Bible, justice and righteousness are connected. In the New Testament Greek, it's the same word. So when I say a biblical judge brings about justice, this is not merely making a criminal determination and passing sentence. A judge makes things right, restoring things or people to the right order, state, and relationships. A biblical judge would decide cases between individuals, like an arbiter. A biblical judge would also make things right between nations, as a leader of an army. A biblical judge would make things right between God and humans, so they were also sometimes priests and prophets. These are the ways a biblical judge restores the right order, God's order, in the community and world. The judge brings God's salvation to humanity. Jacob describes Dan, the judge, as serpent-like. Serpents are not, by definition, an evil symbol in the Bible, and I don't believe Jacob wants his son to be an evil judge. The first mention of a serpent in the Bible is in Genesis 3.1, where the serpent is described as the most cunning. The Genesis serpent also happens to be immoral. I think both of those attributes fit Jacob's description of Dan, the judge. Jacob describes a man riding a horse. That would make this man a warrior. Dan attacks this warrior sneakily, as a viper might hide on the side of the road. The viper attacks the horse, and the horse bucks off the rider. This stops the warrior from coming to attack, and salvation is brought to the people. It's a sneak attack from the snake, which some might consider unsportsmanlike, but is effective in stopping a larger battle. There are two descendants of Dan which illustrate setting things right. Oholav, excuse me, Oholaviv and Samson. Oholaviv shows the intelligence and Samson the deliverance. Oholaviv is mentioned in Exodus 31, 1 through 11 and 35, 30 through 35. I'm just going to read the second passage. Exodus 35, 30 through 35. Moses then said to the Israelites, look, the Lord has appointed by name Belizel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, 
He has filled him with God's spirit, with wisdom, understanding, and ability in every kind of craft to design artistic works in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut gemstones for mounting, and to carve wood for work in every kind of artistic craft. He has also given both him and Oholiab, son of Ashimash, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with the skill to do all the work of a gem cutter, a designer, an embroiderer in blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, and a weaver. They can do every kind of craft and design artistic designs. The person who brings justice raises righteous institutions. need to make sure we spell this correctly. Raise, R-A-I-S-E. The passage is describing the building of the tabernacle. Under Moses and all the way until the time of Solomon, the tabernacle is the place of justice. It's the supreme court of places to go to settle disputes. This is the place to go for people to get right with God. It's the place from which God issues his commands to the nation on where to go and which nations to fight or bypass. The tabernacle is the center point place for social justice. God gave Moses the plans for building the tabernacle, but Moses wasn't to build it himself. Two other people were in charge. But Baziel of the tribe of Judah and Oholiab the, of the tribe of Dan. Belziel's skills are in metalworking, wood, and stone. Oholiab, sorry, his skills are in fabrics, jewels, and design. Oholiab also has the skill of being able to teach others. These two men are in charge of building the place out of which God justice flows to the people. This got me thinking about why and how we build church buildings. Why do we build them and why do we design them the way we do? Many older church buildings were built a certain way because of tradition or economics. Long rectangular buildings are inexpensive to build and good for sitting in pews for worship. Not necessarily good for a lot else unless the pews can be removed and the building is big enough to, for a basketball court. Well-designed modern church facilities are often made to be multi-use seven days a week. As we've remodeled parts of our facility, we're not just thinking about what we need for worship and formation, but also our community's needs. Like the tabernacle, our building should be a tool, not a hindrance, for restoring people to right relationship with God. One of our partners, New Life Family Services, broke ground on the Phillips Neighborhood First Care Pregnancy Center just recently, June 23, 2021. All the previously existing first care centers have been remodeled in the past to better serve the community. But the Phillips Neighborhood Center is going to be their first full-service medical clinic that offers prenatal and whole family care for the whole community. Eighty years ago, there was a neighborhood medical clinic at the Phillips site, and now Christians are restoring that, not only to give people medical care, but to lead people to right relationship with God. Social justice is followers of Jesus raising institutions and programs, not just buildings, that lead people to God. Sometimes the path to God begins with the path to food or health care or education. Sunday school began as school for children who couldn't attend school Monday through Friday because they had to work. Raising institutions and programs doesn't mean we, we always have to start from scratch, like Oholiab. We build with partners. 
New Life Family Services is supported by numerous churches and individuals. Not all social justice partners have to be Christian. There are non-Christians in the world that want to do good, of course. I think it's great. I think it's a great witness when followers of Jesus do good alongside non-Christians. We do have to be careful because sometimes what the world calls good is not what God calls good. But when there is alignment, we can make the world right together. That's why we partner at our church with Tubman and the Chamber of Commerce, the city, the Red Cross, and others. In all the things we build, like Oholiab, we teach. We teach people about God and how to live better, how to work, how to learn A good Sunday school for children is as much about learning how to read as learning Bible stories. Discipleship should be about learning to be a healthy and whole human being, not just memorization of Christian doctrines. I can learn to pray and learn to communicate with others. I can learn to serve the Lord's table and learn to cook a meal for my family, friends, and neighbors. Justice restores God's right order. But what about those institutions that exist that are contrary to God's right order? As I said, not everything the world calls right is right with God. What do we do about those institutions and programs that are unrighteous? That example is found in Samson. His story is in Judges 13 through 16. I'm going to read the story of the beginning and end of Samson's life and then fill in some of the story uh, just, just from memory. Judges 13, 1-5, through 5, The Israels again did what was evil in the Lord's sight, so the Lord handed them over to the Philistines forty years. There was a certain man from Zorah, from the, tri- from the family of Dan, whose name was Manoah. His wife was unable to conceive and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, It is true that you are unable to conceive and have no children, but you will conceive and give birth to a son. Now please be careful not to drink wine or beer or to eat anything unclean, for indeed you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair, because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth, and he will begin to save Israel from the power of the Philistines. And then to the end of Samson's life, Judges 16, 27-30. The temple was full of men and women, and all the leaders of the Philistines were there. And about 3,000 men and women were on the roof watching Samson entertain them. He called out to the Lord, Lord God, please remember me. Strengthen me. God, just one more. With one act of vengeance, let me pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson took hold of the two pillars, two middle pillars supporting the temple and leaned against them, one on his right hand and the other on his left. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all his might, and the temple fell on the leaders and all the people in it. And those he killed at his death were more than those he had killed in his life. So first I raise R-A-I-S-E, righteous institutions, and then I raise R-A-Z-E, unrighteous institutions. Raise unrighteous institutions. In Samson's time, Israel was being oppressed by the Philistines. Samson is raised up by God to be a judge, one who will restore Israel politically as a nation. Samson does this by killing Philistines. At his first wedding, Samson killed and pillaged 30 Philistines. 
Later, in an act of revenge from the Philistines taking his wife and giving her to some other man, Samson caught 300 foxes, tied them together in pairs with a torch hanging between them, and set those animals loose to burn Philistine grain fields, olive groves, and vineyards. When the Philistines tried to capture him, Samson killed 1,000 Philistines with a donkey jawbone. Samson also tore the city gate off the wall of Gaza City. Samson is the viper on the side of the road, knocking the Philistines off their horse. Samson is generally smart in how he goes to battle, or at least smart enough to win. The source of his strength is unknown to the Philistines, which makes me think that Samson may not have been some huge Arnold Schwarzenegger or LeBron James looking man. Saul is described in 1 Samuel 9-2 as standing head and shoulders taller than anyone else. But no such bigness is attributed to Samson. This could be what allowed him to sneakily infiltrate the Philistines, because maybe he didn't look imposing. For 20 years, Samson waged a one-man war against the Philistine oppressors and delivered his people. Although considered the greatest judge of Israel because of his lone exploits, Samson is also like the serpent in that he has weak moral character. God uses Samson to restore Israel despite Samson's moral weakness, which ultimately leads to his downfall and death. Because of his pride and lust, the Philistines eventually capture him and blind him. But even at his death, Samson kills an arena full of Philistines. Those of us who grew up in church probably root for Samson. He's the flawed hero. The Philistines are the oppressors of Israel, and they deserve what they got from Samson. He judged them. But if judgment is deliverance and salvation, then Samson actually judges Israel. Before Samson's story or any of the story of the judges of Israel, there's always the same phrase. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of some nation. The Israelites were being punished for their sins, and then a judge would rise up to restore them once the punishment was over and they had repented. The judge is God's agent for saying, God judged your disobedience and now will restore you to right relationship with him. The unrighteous institutions and programs that must be raised, removed, to restore justice are first the unrighteous things among ourselves, and then second in the greater world. First the Israelites repent and cry out to God, then second God removes the oppression. Another perspective is to see the need for, or in order to see the need for self-judgment before the judgment of others, is to read the story of Samson not as an Israelite hero story, but as a Philistine story. The Philistines are the government, the legal authority. Gaza is a Philistine city. Samson marries a Philistine woman. Samson, the Israelite terrorist, is burning crops, murdering people, looting, destroying public property because Israeli lives matter. When I say social justice includes the tearing down of unrighteous institutions, I'm not saying Christians should go and destroy things we disagree with or wantonly wreck and steal. I'm saying I need to examine myself, my own prejudices, examine the work of my own church and religion, and examine the institutions of my own nation to see if I'm an immoral person, if I am a sinful Israelite, if I'm part of an oppressive Philistine nation. 
among Christians, the Southern Baptist Convention is probably the, the major United States Christian group struggling with this idea. The SBC has racist history. That doesn't mean they're all racist today, but their past affects their current reality of things like who they choose for leadership. Restoring their institution might mean more than repenting for the sins of the past. It might mean some parts of their institution might need to be torn down. There are followers of Jesus, and I am among them, that would like the Christian church to be a catalyst for bringing racial reconciliation to our country. But the church will never achieve bringing racial reconciliation to our country if there's still racism in individuals or institutions of the church. This is part of the argument, not the whole argument, but part of the argument for the modern defund the police movement. I know this is a hot topic, so before anyone tunes me out, please hear me out. I think we should have police. Officers should be paid well, armed well, and held accountable well. Also, as a society, we need to rid ourselves of the myth that modern policing was built upon a foundation of the old West Town Sheriff and the Texas Rangers. Those are part of the history of law enforcement in the United States, but it's not the beginning. Modern policing is better tied in its origin to the Fugitive Slave Act, which allowed armed people to go around and apprehend runaway or alleged runaway slaves. The movie 12 Years a Slave is about Solomon Northrup, a free black man from upstate New York who was abducted by fugitive slave catchers and sold into slavery. If that is part of the origin story of policing, is it any wonder that blacks are incarcerated more than whites, even though blacks are a much smaller part of the population? In the Twin Cities, blacks are incarcerated 11 times that of whites, but blacks are less than 20% of the population. That tells me that there's not just a few bad apples in policing, but there is something unrighteous in the institution that needs to be torn down. I say this as a black man who has never been arrested, but why is my life an exception to the rule? My life experience should be normal. I don't think we need to defund the police. I think we need to restore policing. Justice restores God's right order. And racism is not the only institution that needs to be torn down in our country. Followers of Jesus would like to see our country vote in political leaders that have integrity and godly morality. While at the same time, we in the church have leaders failing in sexual temptation, abusing their leadership positions, and teaching heresy. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1-5, Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others. And you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Jesus wants us to transform the world to justice, but we're not to let our but we are to let ourselves be transformed first. Then we can see clearly to bring restoration to our culture. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4:17, "For the time has come for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who disobey the gospel of God?" 
I think Peter is saying this both as a warning and a promise. The warning is, if God's people face judgment, how much more severe will the judgment be for those disobedient, excuse me, those people who are disobedient on the earth? The promise is, if God can restore his people, God can also restore the whole earth, because justice restores God's right order. Those are the two descendants of Dan, Oholiab and Samson, one who builds and the other who brings down. I want to end uh, with the last point with a story of something done by the whole tribe of Dan, which led to a saying that has implications for justice. Joshua 19.47 describes what happened when the tribe of Dan lost their territory. When the territory of the descendants of Dan slipped out of their control, they went up and fought against Leshem, and they captured it and struck it down with the sword. So they took possession of it, lived there, and and renamed Leshem after their ancestor, Dan. The tribe of Dan lost control of their territory, and so they went to this other city, Leshem, and took it over, and they renamed it. This city, now called Dan, is the northernmost large city of ancient Israel. One of the southernmost large cities of ancient Israel is Beersheba. After the Danites took control of this northern city, when a biblical writer wants to refer to all the people in the land, they often use the phrase, from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south. One example is in Judges 20, verse 1. All the Israelites from Dan to Beersheba and from the land of Gilead came out, and the community assembled as one body before the Lord at Mizpah. I want to use this idea of Dan being the beginning point to refer to all to make my last point. Let's recap. I raise R-A-I-S-E, righteous institutions. I raise R-A-Z-E, unrighteous institutions. And in doing so, I render justice for everyone. From Dan to Beersheba is used ten times in the Old Testament that I found to refer to the whole people as one people. This includes non-Israelites because there are always foreign people in the land. In the ten instances, the people come together as one for four different reasons. The whole people as one come to worship God. The whole people as one come to recognize a prophet or king. The whole people as one come to receive judgment. And the whole people as one come to have peace. Those four reasons all have the same purpose, to restore people to God's right order, for justice, worship of God, recognition and obedience to God's chosen leaders, receiving God's discipline, and living in God's peace. That is everyone restored to right order. God's justice, God's restoration, God's salvation, God's righteousness is for everyone, from Dan to Beersheba. The idea of justice for everyone, we're still figuring out in our society. We started this with our last point, but let's flush it out some more. We often assume that if I can get justice, then everyone can. But there are institutions, not just personal choices, that make justice unequal. And this is especially true in Minnesota. The state of Minnesota has the highest achievement gap in the United States, We are worst in the nation in disparity of high school graduation rates between blacks and whites. I was shocked when I learned that Minnesota is behind former slave states like Georgia and Alabama. This is one reason why I chose to serve on a school board. 
in former slave states, there may be a lot of poor blacks, but there are also a lot of poor whites. So the achievement gaps in education, economics, and opportunity are not as great, even though there may be more overt racism in the South. What happened in Minnesota is different. There was a time when almost everyone in Minnesota was poor, but the leaders took advantage of federal programs to raise the standard of living. People got land, were able to buy houses, and got educated, but not all people. Only white people got to take advantage of these programs. Those inequities in the past bring us to where we are today, because wealth is most often built generationally. In the Twin Cities, the median black family earns $38,000 a year, while the median white family earns $84,000 a year. Before the pandemic, black unemployment was at a historic low, but that was still double that of whites. In the Twin Cities, the poverty rate for blacks is 25.4% and for whites, 6%. Three quarters of white families own homes, but only one quarter of black families own homes. I only looked up the stats for blacks and whites. My guess is that these numbers are even worse for American Indians. We need to deal with the reality that although we live in a country whose ideal is justice for all, our reality does not live up to that ideal. But God calls his followers not to merely work for an American ideal of justice for our own citizens, but God's ideal of justice for all people. It doesn't mean we're all going to have equal outcomes. You know, but I can't just look at life based on my own experience. The person or family or group that finds themselves in a bad situation because they've made foolish or sinful life choices is that bad situation is the cause of their own you know, consequences. They're getting the punishment they deserve. They made their bed and now they have to sleep in it. That's Psalm 1. A person who walks in step with the wicked, stands in the way with sinners, and sits in the company of mockers, God will blow away like chaff and they will not be able to stand before God in judgment, nor will they be counted with the righteous. That's been my life. When I make good choices, generally good things happen to me. And when I make bad choices, generally bad things happen to me. There are other people, families, and groups that haven't had my experience. These people find themselves in a bad situation through no fault of their own. Perhaps someone else made a bad choice, or they had a life tragedy, and now they're in a bad situation. These people are also described in the Bible, usually as the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. That's in Exodus 22, Deuteronomy 14 and 16, and Jeremiah 7. I must remember, God's judgment is not merely making the determination that one person or society deserves punishment while another might not. God's justice is combined with mercy such that whether I deserve the punishment and I'm in a bad or if I'm in a bad situation through no fault of my own, God seeks to restore everyone. Job's friends had to learn this. They basically said to Job, Job, God wouldn't be letting you go through all this bad stuff if you were righteous, so you might as well just admit that you've sinned. Job answers them this way in Job 6.14. For this for the despairing man, there should be kindness from his friend, so that he does not forsake the fear of the Almighty. What Job is saying to his friends is, 
If you were really my friends, you should have approached me with loving kindness, whether I was guilty or innocent. I'm not saying that we sweep sins under the rug. One of our living stones is accountability. What I'm saying is our calling is to restore all people in love, regardless of the reason that they need restoration. Justice that restores God's right order is justice for everyone. Fortunately for us, neither Oheliab or Samson is the final fulfillment of Dad's ble- Dan's blessing of restorative justice. In Luke 14, 8-19, Jesus proclaimed, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Not long after this, Jesus sent his disciples out to do the same. Mark six twelve and 13. So they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons, anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Jesus and the apostles did not merely preach the salvation of the Spirit for the next life. They actively used the power of God to restore people in this life. I look at the scope of restoration that the world needs and think, what can one person or even one church congregation do? But then I think of what the one person Jesus was able to do and continues to do through people. The Wesleyan Church does not even make the top 25 in terms of size of Christian denominations in the United States, but we have the most immigrant connection centers of any denomination. Our former general superintendent, Dr. Joanne Lyon, sits on national councils and gets to talk to presidents about policy. Jesus says in Matthew 25:31-46 that he will judge us on how we brought restoration to the hungry, the thirsty, the foreigner, the poor, the sick, and the prisoner. That is both people who deserve their situation and people who did not. Both locally and nationally, we have ways to get involved. We have partners that work to stop human trafficking. We just finished working with First Care Pregnancy Center and Tubman to help families in our community. Christian Cupboard just opened its second location in Oakdale to give people food, and they always need volunteers. Jeremiah 1.10 says, See, I have appointed you today over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and demolish, to build and plant. Our prayer today is taken from Psalm 24. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. The one who has not appealed to what is false and who has not sworn deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Our God, righteous judge, we ask for your wisdom and strength to know what to tear down and what to build up so that your justice and salvation can restore all people. Amen. Go forth to live as disciples, serving God with your whole being, knowing that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do great exploits in God's name.